This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. This series of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, is brought to you by Climate Field View. Ready to have all your farm's information right at your fingertips? With the Climate Field View platform, you can instantly analyze every pass you make in field, capture weather conditions, and monitor crop performance. You get all the info you need to confidently make the right decisions for your field, anywhere, anytime. Start collecting information now and take full advantage of the yield analysis tools come harvest time. For more information, visit climatefieldview.ca or talk to your FieldView dealer and sign up for a one-year free trial today. Hello, and welcome to the third episode in our latest Inputs podcast series. I'm Alex Bernard, Associate Editor for Top Crop Manager. While there are indicators that help predict disease prevalence in a growing season, the many factors that influence crop disease risk and severity keep farmers, agronomists, and pathologists on their toes. 2020 has been a wet year for many on the prairies, but this has less of an effect on crop disease than you may expect, according to Kelly Turkington, a plant pathologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. Turkington explains why infection levels vary by year, a variety of management methods, and the importance of pathologists in determining disease prevalence and severity. So we'll just jump in. How has disease pressure been so far in Alberta this growing season? In Alberta, it I think it's varied depending on the location and the amount of rainfall received. And in some areas, we've had a fair bit of stress related to water logging. And that's not something that you can mitigate against in terms of spraying a fungicide or taking other steps as far as variety choice, at least at this particular time. But those weather conditions certainly have been conducive for uh, leaf disease development in a range of crops, whether it's cereals, canola, or the pulse crops. So, you know, the, the, the moisture has facilitated disease risk, and uh, certainly we're hearing reports of lots of spraying, both for leaf diseases as well as head diseases such as fusarium, head blight. Okay. Yeah, I know I'd heard that it's quite damp on the prairies this year, in many parts at least, and I wondered if the water logging would either help the situation or make it worse. You know, I think if the water logging is significant enough, any subtle change in risk for disease is likely of limited consequence would be the main concern in terms of impact. The perception that that might increase the risk of disease Uh, Because the plant is weakened, there may be a subtle effect, but quite frankly, there are other issues that that plant is facing that uh, are much more important. Okay. And specifically, have you seen any stripe rust or fusarium head blight issues? In terms of stripe rust, we're fortunate that we have uh, an ongoing initiative through the um, Integrated Crop Agronomy Cluster, which is under the CAP program and that is being administered by Western Grains Research Foundation. And part of that initiative involves looking at cereal rust risk forecasts during the spring and summer. So those are focused on 
several key points. First of all, looking at rust epidemic development in the states. And the big concern for striped rust is primarily the Pacific Northwest, so Oregon, Washington State, and Northwestern Idaho. So we looked at what is happening in terms of the crop and rust situation there, starting as early as March, actually. You can start to follow that. We also look at the Texas to Nebraska corridor, so Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma and Texas, and we look at the the rust epidemics that are developing there. And our primary focus in that region is a combination of leaf rust and stripe rust. And so we look at epidemic development. So do we have a source of rust spores that can be blown into the prairie region and thus threaten prairie crops? The second aspect that we look at is actually wind trajectory analysis. So we're fortunate to be working with two groups. One is in Ag- is with Ag Canada in Saskatoon, and the other group is with Environment Canada in Montreal. And the group in Saskatoon is comprised primarily of entomologists, and they've been looking at wind trajectories from the U.S. and northern Mexico in relation to insect movement into the prairie region. So. In the past, they've looked at things like diamondback, moth movement, and so on. And we're looking at that in terms of potential for serial rust spore dispersal into the prairie region. So the group in Montreal with Environment Canada looks at trajectory analysis for about 29 key locations in the prairie region. And over the previous five-day period, where did the trajectory that passed over Let's say Lethbridge at midnight on July 1st. Where did that trajectory come from? Did it pass through an area that is a source for cereal rust spores? So we look at that. Uh, we look at crop development in the prairie region. Obviously, you need a crop to have a risk. And we also look at weather conditions. So the epidemic of stripe rust started fairly slowly. The levels of development of striped rust in the Pacific Northwest were fairly low in commercial fields. It would be a similar situation for leaf and striped rust in that Texas to Nebraska corridor. So the risk in terms of a, a source of spores was relatively low. However, we did have a number of trajectories over a weekly period starting in, in about mid-May and throughout the rest of May and throughout June, where we had probably low to moderate risk of trajectories carrying any spore, rust spores that may have been in the air up into the prairie region. And so this year, we didn't really uh, start to see a lot of rust reports until about early June or a couple of uh, minor observations. And then they started to increase throughout uh, the latter part of June and, and into July. So certainly at a number of locations across the prairie region, there's been rust observed, primarily stripe rust, but a bit of leaf rust. And the main area of concern has been southern Alberta. And we saw that with the wind trajectory analysis, uh, that southern Alberta region is a region in the prairies that tends to get the most frequent occurrence of wind trajectories from the Pacific Northwest and where we started to see early, relatively early, 
it's a bit later than we, we sometimes normally see, but relatively early indications of rust and then subsequent multiple observations in multiple municipalities uh, has been in southern Alberta. So the level and the time that the rust moved into these crops Likely, uh, in terms of winter wheat, the impact would be relatively low. There would be more risk for some of the spring wheat crops in that region, especially crops that were highly susceptible. But in some cases, that rust hasn't come into the crop until after head emergence. And certainly, once you start to get into head emergence and grain filling, the later that rust appears, the less impact it has on yield losses. So, But we're certainly seeing multiple reports of stripe rust in southern Alberta and uh, a few in central Alberta and some up in both the BC Peace and Alberta Peace regions. Okay. Now, are those spores likely to spread further or is this has that period of travel kind of passed? Basically, by the end of June, the concern switched from rust being blown up from the Pacific Northwest and from that Texas to Nebraska corridor, the concern switched from those areas acting as a source to more regional sources of inoculum. So the development of an observation of striped rust in southern Alberta would act as a source of rust for other areas in Alberta as well as further east into Saskatchewan. Okay. So the other thing that comes into play is that as you transition from early June to mid-June, most of the crop in Texas, Oklahoma would be mature. And in fact, would either the harvesting would have started or would have been completed. And then as you transition into mid-June to late June, you'd start to see crops in that uh, Kansas, Nebraska maturing and then being harvested. So. Once those winter wheat crops in the state start to mature, the plants, they no longer represent a significant source of rust inoculum because the, the rust itself requires a living plant to, to develop and to sporulate on. So as the crop matures, it, it tells the fungus to switch to a life cycle that is more adapted to overwintering or transitioning inoculum from the wheat crop to any alternate host that the, the rust may have. Okay. So towards the end of June, first part of July, really the, the concern, mid-June to late June, the concern switched from the states being a significant source of inoculum to what was happening regionally in the prairie region. Will the effects of rust infections be seen before harvest, or is that something that people can tell how much it's going to damage their yield now? Definitely with uh, leaf spot diseases and a number of other disease issues, you can go out at this time of year. This is the key time to assess disease levels in terms of sort of the final development and the final impact. So for leaf spot diseases in cereals, if you assess percent leaf area affected on the flag leaf in wheat or the penultimate leaf or the second leaf from the head in barley, you can use that information to gauge the potential yield loss. There's sort of rules of thumb that allow a farmer to do that as long as they've assessed disease levels. And they could do that themselves or if they work with a crop consultant, the consultant would do that. 
So they could look at the final levels of disease, use these rules of thumb then to estimate potential percent yield loss. And then, of course, uh, at harvest, if producers have sprayed with a fungicide, and we certainly encourage that if they do that, to leave some check strips or check areas so they can actually go back and gauge the benefit of that fungicide application, look at the conditions that prevailed, the crop conditions, the weather conditions, the appearance of disease, and whether or not they had a reasonable response to fungicide application, not only in terms of disease management, but ultimately, of course, in terms of crop productivity. So it's a combination of things. You can start looking at this point in time at what disease levels you have, and depending on the disease and crop, there are rules of thumb that allow you to estimate potential yield loss. And then ultimately at harvest, if you've got those check strips or areas in place, you could perhaps look at yields in sprayed versus non-sprayed areas and so on. For some disease issues, especially something like fusarium head blight, you can see symptoms in the field at this particular time, but it may be hard to gauge potential impact. Certainly seeing symptoms in a field of wheat, for instance, the symptoms are quite distinct for fusarium head blight. You could probably get some idea of potential for downgrading due to the presence of fusarium damaged kernels. Unfortunately, in Alberta and many areas, even though fusarium graminearum is starting to become well-established, in many areas it's still sort of in that transition period. And if you do find that you have issues with downgrading due to fusarium-damaged kernels, sometimes those fusarium-damaged kernels, or FDKs, can be due to other fusarium species. So not fusarium graminearum, but fusarium avenaceum, fusarium calmorum, or fusarium poe, or they actually may be due to other disease issues, such as the gloom blotch pathogen, which is a septoria species that causes leaf blotch and gloom blotch. And the symptoms in harvested grain, if you have head infections, can mimic fusarium damaged kernels due to fusarium graminearum. So that would be an important thing. So if you see symptoms in the field at this particular time, those symptoms may or may not be due to fusarium graminearum. They may be due to other fusarium species. Gloom blotch is quite distinct, though. With fusarium, it produces prematurely bleached florets on the head, so there might be one or two sort of spikelets on the head that are prematurely ripened and infected, or it could be a quarter of the head or half the head, or under very severe conditions, the whole head. But those symptoms are quite distinct. Bleached white sort of premature ripening of those head tissues. And if it's been fairly damp, often you'll see the, the fusarium graminearum fungus or other species of fusarium sporulating on that tissue. So producing spores on that infected tissue, those spores are produced in a mass and they're rain splashed dispersed. So you can see orangish or pinkish or pinkish white masses of spores, which would be indicative of fusarium head blight symptoms. In contrast, gloom blotch produces brownish to purpley brown lesions on the glooms. And if you look closely, sometimes you'll see those lesions are dotted with these small 
honey brown or brown fruiting structures, which are known as pycnidia, and they release the rain splash spore stage. So you can see those symptoms, but then it would be very important to follow up after harvest in terms of what your grade is. Do you have downgrading due to fusarium damaged kernels? And if you do, it would be very important to make sure that you have that grain tested for fusarium in the arm. Is it present? Is it causing those fusarium damaged kernels? And if not, is it the gloom blotch pathogen? Because what you may find is, is that your FDKs are not due to Gruniarum, and thus you have limited to no potential for production of deoxynivolenol or the mycotoxin. So by making sure that you do a bit of post-harvest assessment in terms of seed testing, maybe even mycotoxin testing, that gives you the potential to look at options in terms of where that grain goes. Because it may be downgraded due to FDK presence, but if those FDKs are not due to Griminiarum and you don't have Fusarium Griminiarum present and you don't find deoxynivolenol or Dawn in the harvested grain, that opens up some potential market opportunities. So that wheat, for instance, feed wheat can be moved into the hog sector. Hogs are very susceptible to the mycotoxin Dawn. Okay. So, yes, it's something very important for farmers to, yeah. to recognize. And, and the, in terms of rust, certainly you can do very, something very similar to what you do with the leaf spot diseases. So leaf spots comprise in wheat tan spot and the septoria complex. And there's two types of septoria that, that can affect wheat. In barley, the leaf disease or leaf spot complex includes scald, the two types of net blotch, and spot blotch. The rusts are, are different. You can have stripe rust, as we've talked about already, or leaf rust, but you can go out and assess the severity of whether it's leaf spot severity or rust severity at this time of year, at that late milk, early dough stage, and you can estimate potential impact in terms of yield loss. Okay. Now, is there an organization or a group that farmers should report to if they do find these symptoms, or is it something they should track internally? Well, it's a combination of it. If they are concerned about particular disease issues in their crop, it may be quite useful for them to contact a pathologist or perhaps someone with the extension department. You know, it's general information for them. It, It illustrates what has happened on their farm. And if they attempted to try and mitigate that risk with fungicide application and they've left check strips, they can look at what benefit that fungicide application had. I would say it would be especially important for them to let pathologists know if they're seeing symptoms of disease in a variety of wheat or barley that they assumed was supposed to be resistant to the disease that they're trying to control. So good examples of that are shifts in virulence in the stripe rust pathogen. So they may have chosen a variety in the winter. They're concerned about stripe rust, so they choose a variety that that is moderately resistant or resistant. And then during the growing season, they're out scouting their field, either themselves or working with a consultant, and all of a sudden they start to see symptoms, more symptoms of stripe rust than they would expect to see in that resistant variety. In that situation, it would be very, very important to contact a pathologist 
who is working on that particular disease issue because they're the pathologists are actively studying the characteristics of the pathogen populations that we have in the prairie region. So they monitor or ship in virulence. Has the pathogen adapted to the resistance that's been incorporated into that crop variety? And we see concerns across the board. So in canola, you've got shifts in virulence in terms of the club root pathogen. You've got shifts in virulence in terms of the black lake pathogen. In uh, barley, scald is one particular disease issue that's extremely variable and changes and adapts to the resistance in the barley variety that a farmer is growing, especially where that resistance source is in a variety that has been grown. Either the worst case scenario would be continuously or every second year. If you're selecting for members of that pathogen population that have adapted to the, the resistance that's in the variety. So it's not a change in the variety itself. It's actually a change in the pathogen population within that field. So we see that in barley and then, of course, in both barley and wheat in terms of the rust. So in, in barley, we have seen some stripe rust over the years, but normally it's been fairly good as far as rust development. Where we've seen more problems has been in wheat, whether it's winter wheat or spring wheat varieties, where the variety doesn't have a good rust package in terms of resistance, and especially in terms of things like stripe rust, but also leaf rust. So there can be shifts in the rust pathogen populations so that they adapt to the resistance that's present in the variety. So pathologists, one of the most important reasons that they survey is it's certainly to gauge what is out there, the prevalence of the disease issue, their severity, and what potential impact they're having. That's very important information. But as importantly, the pathologists use the surveys to collect plant samples to then study further in the lab or growth cabinet or greenhouse. So they look at things like the virulence characteristics of the pathogen population that they're, they're working on. In some cases, they may look at a collection of pathogen isolates and gauging whether or not there's any members of that pathogen population that are shifting in terms of their sensitivity to fungicide. So a very similar situation to what farmers are used to in terms of herbicide-resistant weeds. We're seeing similar shifts in fungicide sensitivity in terms of different pathogens. The biggest example of that would be probably ascochyte and chickpeas and adaptation to some of particular fungicide groups. So again, pathologists are out surveying to gauge the presence and impact of diseases, but also to further study the characteristics of those pathogen populations. Okay. Now, I know with herbicide resistance, farmers have strategies to delay growing resistance or, or additional resistances. Is that something that farmers can do with diseases like scald or fusarium head blight, or is that simply that the disease is mutating faster than we can develop resistances for it? Well, there's two things there. So it's important to manage the resistance genes that you have in a variety. So if you look at black lake and canola, over the last few years, we've had 
the availability of information related to the source of resistance in particular, hybrid canola varieties. We've also seen the advent of testing by seed testing labs and other plant health labs across the prairies where they can take canola residue and look at assessing if the black-leaf pathogen is present and more importantly, what race of that pathogen a farmer has. So then the farmer can look at the combination of the varieties they've grown in the past. If they do some of the residue testing, it indicates the races of the black lake pathogen that they have. So they can use all of that information to then look at what variety to plant in future growing season. So it's very, very important in terms of changing the resistance that's there. The same thing would happen in terms of things like the leaf spot diseases in, in cereals. And I'm most familiar with shifts in terms of virulence in the net blotch pathogen in barley and the scald pathogen in barley. We don't necessarily know exactly the genes that are there, but we know that there is a variation in terms of the source of resistance amongst varieties and that ideally, much like what farmers are doing with herbicides and active ingredients and what's being recommended in terms of fungicide, that they actually rotate the varieties that they're growing. So the worst case scenario would be a situation where, let's say, barley, a resistant variety of barley to scald is being grown continuously because of on-farm either feed or forage or silage supply concerns. So the idea is you need to go continuous barley to make sure you've got sufficient supplies of feed grain and forage. That is a situation that's a high risk in terms of adaptation of that pathogen population because it's continual production of barley and the worst-case scenario is the same variety. So ideally, if you change varieties, that will help to maybe diversify the genetics that you're using in terms of resistance and to lessen the risk in subsequent growing seasons. However, I would still say it's, it's probably more important to look at alternative crops that might have a fit in that seed grain or, or forage or silage production system. So, you know, certainly barley is one crop, but some of the other small grain cereals like triticale, even oat, even wheat can be crops that can be considered for silage or swath grazing or other sources of feed or, or forage. That's certainly something to look at. And so rotating amongst a combination of those different crop types will help to lessen the risk of disease as well as help to lessen the risk that the pathogen population will shift in response to the genetics within a particular variety. And the same thing applies in terms of fungicides. So, and we can learn from other countries. So we're behind and in a good way compared to Europe and the UK. They have a longer history of fungicide use, and often in many cases, fungicides are their primary tool that is being used to manage leaf disease risk in cereals and other crops. And as a consequence, they've seen for decades now shifts in sensitivity to particular fungicide active ingredients. Australia is not quite as bad as Europe, but it, it's moving in that direction. So we can look at, at what the experience has been like in Europe, the UK, Australia, 
And what it tells us is that if we rely exclusively on fungicides as our sole disease management strategy, we have a much greater risk of fungicide resistance development occurring. And especially where we use the same active ingredient repeatedly, both within a growing season where you might spray anywhere from one to two to three, and in some cases, maybe even four times if you look at some of the pulse crops and earlier disease issues there, you might spray as many as three times, perhaps even four in a high-risk or high-pressure summer. And that greatly increases your risk of fungicide resistance development. And then you can look at your particular fungicide in the active ingredient, and there's variation in terms of the risk. So it's a combination of things. If you look at fungicides, and the same thing would be the case with herbicides, you need to look at your use pattern, how frequently you use products, what products you're using, their inherent risk as far as fungicide resistance development, and then also the, the nature of the pathogen that you're managing. The worst case scenario is you have a pathogen that can cycle on the crop within the growing season rapidly, so maybe completing its life cycle every four to seven to maybe 14 days, which a lot of the leaf spot diseases do. They cycle on that crop during late May, throughout June and July. So that creates potential for a greater proportion of the pathogen population to be selected. So again, the more frequently you use a particular tool, you have to keep in mind that pathogen populations are not static. They will adapt to the environment that they're developing in, and they'll adapt to the cropping practices that are being used by the farmer, or the type of rotation that's being used, the variety that's being grown, and the pesticides that are being used to manage that pathogen population. It's important to use all the tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. And variety is the spice of life, so change up your active ingredients. <laughs> well, in many cases, a lot of the newer products, at the minimum, would be comprised of two different active ingredients. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that may even be three to four. So you're addressing a range of different pathogens, but you're also putting in applying a product that has two to three different modes of action for a particular disease issue. So that just makes it that much more difficult for that pathogen to adapt to the, the particular fungicide that's being used. The more active ingredients you have within a particular product, the more difficult it is for the pathogen population to develop members of the pathogen population that have resistance to two different modes of action. All right. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I feel like I know so much more now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it was useful. I think so. I think it'll help folks get through the season a little better and prepare for next year. Yeah, and certainly, you know, at this particular point in time, it's important to see what's happened within your crop because you can use that information in terms of marketing opportunities. So again, the discussion regarding downgrading due to fusarium damaged kernels. Is it due to Graminiarum or is it due to other fusarium species that are less of a concern or to other plant pathogens that are not a concern in terms of mycotoxin production? The other thing is that you can look at, you know, if you've had a series of 
crops that have had significant disease issues, that might be an indication that you, you need to look at lengthening your rotation with different host crops. The challenge is what crops to grow, what crops you can successfully grow, and what crops can you successfully market. And those two factors can be an important consideration. So a producer is simply not comfortable with a particular crop because they've had issues with it in the past in terms of weed management, harvestability. So something like field peas, for instance, excellent rotational crop for cereal leaf diseases and for trying to mitigate some of the risk from fusarium head blight caused by fusarium gramidiarum. The problem is that in the past, the varieties we had and the, the production tools that we had, we had issues with lodging, standability, and then also weed management. So newer varieties, newer tools have mitigated some of that. So it's not as much of a concern. However, in field peas, you have your own disease issues. And probably one of the biggest ones right now is phanomyces. So the recommended rotation for that is probably at least four to six years. So that's how often you can grow field peas which means that your your potential options in terms of crops is greatly reduced. So so certainly, yeah. So you can use the information to look at maybe lengthening your crop rotation, including crops that you, you have comfort with and that you can act successfully market. The other thing is you, it may indicate the need to pay closer attention to your disease management program and perhaps look at changing the varieties that you're growing to better, more improved varieties with a better disease resistance package, or perhaps even looking at, okay, I didn't spray this year, I've had significant issues, so that's something that I need to keep in mind in subsequent growing seasons. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.